From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Three years ago, 19-year-old Kennedy Folkadal was working his summer construction job, just as he had every summer during high school. That day, working with a miter saw, as he had many times before, Kennedy's life changed forever. On today's Mayo Clinic radio program, we'll hear the story of injury, surgery, and recovery. When the paramedics came to pick me up, they had a large bag that they were putting it in. And, you know, the paramedic, I felt kind of bad for him because he was a little startled by it. Also on the program, treatment options for urethral stricture. And lessons learned during Mayo Clinic's implementation of a new electronic medical record. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, what was a regular routine day at work for Kennedy Folkadol changed in the blink of an eye? An accident with a miter saw severed Kennedy's left hand completely. But thanks to his own quick thinking and Mayo Clinic being just a helicopter ride away, this tragic accident has a happy ending, which is great because he is here to share his story. Kennedy Folkadol and his surgeon, Dr. David Dennison, welcome to the program, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Yep, nice to have you guys with us. So, Kennedy, if you don't mind, let's let's go back to that day and what you remember about it and what your job was and, and how this accident happened. Okay, so we started off the day, um, we did a little overpass, we had to rip off the shingles and place some back down, and then we um, followed into town where we were remodeling above a coffee shop. So you were working in construction? Yes, ma'am. On break from college, were you in college, or what were you doing? Yep, I was uh, home for the summer, Okay. just working with a company in town. Making money um, for college. Yep, exactly. In Iowa, by the way. Are you, are you from Iowa? Yes. Oh, he's, he's got a future. Yeah. <laughs> so where were you in Iowa? So we were in Decorah, Iowa, right on Water Street, working above the Java Johns there in town. Had you been in construction before? Yeah, I'd worked construction ever since I was a sophomore in high school. So it was something I did every summer um, just to make a little extra money. And I always enjoyed, you know, long days and working hard. So you got distracted by the delicious coffee smell at Java Johns? (laughs) Is that what happened? Well, when we got there, we actually, they treated us to some donuts and uh, some refreshments. So I was... uh, Feeling pretty pretty energized. <laughs> <laughs> and what happened? Um, we were cutting baseboard trim, and I was cutting it and then having this kid place it in the positions where it needed to go. He was nailing it. And as I was going through this board, there was a knot, I believe, that had jumped forward. And I believed it caught onto my sleeve of my long sleeve shirt and just kind of ripped it in so fast that there was no way I could have done anything about it. And it cut your hand right off? Yep, it it was, we actually replaced the blade a week before, um, just because it was, you know, a lot of summer work coming up, and it was... Uh, it was sharp. Yeah, it was, it was very fresh. And this was a miter saw? Fresh. Table yep. table saw? Yep, or? chop saw, miter saw, 12-inch blade. And you, I know this because <laughs> I read the prep on this interview, you somehow had the presence of mind to tie it off with your shirt on your own. No one else did that for you? You could say I was kind of freaking out, um, and the blood was spraying everywhere, and I didn't want to, you know, ruin all the nice cabinets and stuff we had just put in. So I quickly wrapped it and um, tried to. Well, you only had one hand. How did you? How did you wrap it? Somehow I got that shirt oh, off. Oh, you wrapped just wrapped it around with one hand. Yeah, yeah. I got the shirt off and then just kind of tightly 
I don't really remember how I did it. I just did it so quick. I was just trying to stop the bleeding and kind of control it um, a little bit. And I ran in, and this this kid that I was working with, he was actually a little older than me. He was not doing well. He started he to freak he, out. He fainted, or he didn't faint. Mm-hmm. Thank God, because I don't know what I would have done with the with him. Um, <laughs> what did you have? What did you have him do? I told him to go downstairs and get some ice, and then I didn't have my phone on me. I left it in my boss's truck, and um, he called the ambulance and told him what had happened, and then went down to the coffee shop to get ice. But in the event of trying not to make it such a big deal, he came up with a plastic cup of ice instead of a large bag, which was, you know. He thought you had a little bruise or. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what he was. a slight emergency upstairs and I could use a little ice? <laughs> yeah. So he brought this cup up and I was like, okay, that, well, we can make that work. So I kind of just put the hand, you know, down in it, hoping that that might preserve it a little better. So how did you know that might be the right thing to do? You know, I don't know if it was a movie I saw when I was younger or if it was God just clicking the information into my head or what, but it, something clicked, and I I figured that was the best thing to do with the situation at hand. And um, Did you get, did you see what he did there, the situation at hand? What a guy. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> did you get a ride in the helicopter in May 01? So, yeah, I did eventually. They ambulanced me to the hospital. And they were actually going to send me to La Crosse because my mom was working there at the time. And we thought, you know, insurance reasons, that's probably the best place to go. But luckily, one of the nurses who was there knew that they didn't have the ability to do that. And, it, you know, they would end up sending me to Mayo anyway. So they just called Mayo and had them come down to Decor and pick me up. In the helicopter? Yep. You, you remember all this? Yep. So um, I'm sure that there was still some bleeding, even with your shirt as a tourniquet on your forearm, right? Yeah, it was, was, I mean, So how did you ultimately get it stopped? I mean, because there's two big arteries down there. We'll learn more from Dr. Dennison. Mm -hmm. But the blood must have been spurting out clear over to the baseboard, wasn't it? So there was a a local doctor walking by the street. My boss um, saw him, and that was his doctor. So he was like, yo, I need you to come up here and try help. And... He comes up and he put his fingers in the arteries to stop the bleeding and held him there until the paramedics came with oh. the, the legitimate trinket, you know, strap or whatever. So it was a pretty big deal for him to do that. I mean, he was just talking to me like, oh, what are your, what are your siblings doing? How's your dad? How's your mom? You know, <laughs> trying to get my mind off sure. it, of course. But um, I think that was a big, big part to play in it. Dr. Dennison, what happened when Kennedy arrived? You were working that day, or did you get called in, or what happened? Uh, yeah, we were here on call that beginning of the week. I think it was a Friday, but the beginning of the weekend Saturday. or so. Was it Saturday? Saturday? It was over a weekend on call, with, um, and we were on call and got the, the uh, notification from our triage center that there's a young man who had a hand that was uh, cut off on his way up. And uh, fortunately, they that was the, the main thing. You were there probably before... We left from here to go down to the hospital. Mm-hmm. I honestly don't remember much of our discussion when I met you that day because it was probably pretty quick. I think I probably said, well, we're going to do what we can do. And we uh, took off with your hand at the time, which had been nicely prepared by everybody who picked it up on ice. If we put it in a bag and some wet saline around it in the bag and then on ice, kind of close to what you started with. Mm-hmm. Did, they, did they do that at the Decora Hospital or did the paramedics do that one or do you remember? When the paramedics came to pick me up, they had a large bag that they were putting it in. And, you know, the paramedic, I felt kind of bad for him because he was a little startled by it. 
And I don't know if the hand was trying to run away on him or what, but it, he couldn't get it in the bag. And I was just sitting there kind of watching, like, hey, be careful with that thing. Like, <laughs> we, may, we may need that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> please, please treat it gently. But they, they got it in the bag, and, and then I would assume they eventually put some saline on it because that helps preserve it a little more. So how long did it take you to decide that this was a reattachable hand? So that was one of the uh, good things about this story was that um, Kennedy had gotten to us relatively quickly, within a, probably a few hours, I would say, uh, with any kind of muscle in the hand or any part of uh, consideration for replantation, the uh, ischemia time really does matter if there's muscle in the part. So in the hand, there's not that much muscle, but he had gotten to us, I think, probably around three hours, maybe a little bit more from the time of the injury, and the hand had been well-preserved in a wrapped in saline and plastic on ice. So it gave us uh, some confidence in the amount of time that we had to get started. So there was no question in your mind that this is something that you should go with, because sometimes it's it's iffy whether or not it's the Absolutely, right thing to do, yeah. right? The, the, um, the other thing here is just that uh, the saw injury was very sharp, and it was a very narrow zone of injury, so we didn't have a large loss of tissue on either side. So it was something where we could find two ends and put back together, basically. Yeah, well, you're going to have to tell us how you did that. <laughs> We're talking about a uh, accident that severed Kennedy Folkadol's hand, requiring a hand replant, which was performed by Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon Dr. David Dennison. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll hear more about Kennedy's road to recovery. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. We are back with Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon Dr. David Dennison and his patient Kennedy Folkadol. Now, Dr. Dennison, how long ago was this, by the way? Just uh, just about three years now. Three years ago. And how old are you now, Kennedy? 22. All right. Dr. Dennison was able to reattach Kennedy's hand after a work accident. So we want to hear about the surgery. You you have made the decision that you should reattach this hand. By the way, are you right or left-handed? Thankfully, right. Okay, and this was your left hand? Yes, sir. All right, there's one good thing so far. <laughs> so, Dr. Denison, you made the, you evaluated Kennedy. Uh, you, uh, the hand was, was on ice, um, and you made the decision to go to the OR. Yes, Tom. Um, fortunately, again, uh, Kennedy got there relatively quickly, within a couple of hours from his injury, and the, his hand was um, prepared nicely from the site of the uh, injury. And that's important? Very important to make sure that it can help preserve the viability of any muscle in particular that could be in the hand as opposed to a finger or thumb. In any case, we would keep any part in moist saline, gauze, plastic bag, and then on ice. And it came, uh, fortunately, it was uh, doing a good job like that, staying cool while we were able to assess the hand and look for parts that we could replant. And uh, the other thing was that Kennedy did a great job, too, is that with the site of the accident, uh, Bleeding control is number one, so he did a good job of getting a tourniquet on there, and there are other ways to do that, but elevation and a tourniquet control was uh, fortunately kept him thinking and getting him to the next step in his care. You say there are other ways to do that, but not too many of us are carrying around a tourniquet in our pocket. No, yeah. not too many, but um, there has been a bit of a, a push, I think, in the even on things like Facebook to see patients talk or people talking about you know, having a tourniquet somewhere just almost like having a defibrillator available or mm. something like that because those injuries do occur and um, it's probably not a bad idea to at least think about it and maybe have one at the cabin or on the boat or something just in case. Certainly any place where there is a saw or yeah, yeah. workplace for sure. <laughs> okay. Or a coffee shop. Oh, yeah. boy. 
All right, so how long did that surgery take from beginning to end? Oh, you know, um, I haven't thought about that in a while. It was probably, I'm guessing, probably in between six to nine hours, maybe a little longer. I don't remember exactly. What's the main... I'm sorry. I was just going to say, but it's not something that you do every day, so how... You must have some sort of training that kicks in. Oh yeah, the last time we reattached. Yeah, um, yeah it does happen. We're um, basically the main thing is to get uh, make sure the patient's okay, get them upstairs, see if there are if it's doable, if there's structures on each side that we can reattach, and then also timing, trying to get some blood flow back into the into the hand so that it all the muscles and the nerves and things can hopefully re- recover. Now, you, you're not by yourself. I mean, you have absolutely probably not. a fellow there. No, absolutely and, not. And did some, another hand surgeon come in to help you so you could take a little break? Uh, not exactly, but we had a, a great team that day, of course, just like always here at Mayo, from everybody in the ER. We had several residents, chief residents, hand fellows that all participated. Um, in particular, Dr. Ali Zapano was the fellow at the time, and Ali and I did most of the work together that day. So tell us the process. What do you fix first? How do you uh, briefly push sure. this thing back on? Well, just kind of get things cleaned up and see where we can get bone back to bone and make sure that the nerves will reach each other, hopefully. And so we do bone first, get stability, then blood flow, and then kind of repair all the other structures, the tendons and, and nerves to follow. So it really was lucky, not only that Kennedy is right-handed, but it really was lucky that it was a brand new blade that very cleanly cut his hand off. Uh, well, probably <laughs> if you have to have sparingly, it, but yeah. yeah, it was the zone of injury being narrow was clearly helpful huh. as opposed to if it was an agricultural injury mm-hmm. or something where more of the tissue was crushed or things. So, um, tell us about the rehabilitation, Kennedy. What what was that like for you? Um, I had nine months of uh, PT. Um, do you so you probably could not feel your hand uh, immediately after the surgery, right? I could move my fingers a little bit, okay, but everything was pretty tight, pretty uh, pretty numb, traumatized. You know, the whole area was just a little difficult to move, and yeah, pretty numb. So the nerves, even though they have been sewn back together, it takes a while for the sensation to come back and the motor function to come back. Sure, right? sure, about an inch a month in general. So um, the injury is traumatizing. What was this like emotionally? Um, for me, I really enjoyed construction, and I, you know, I really enjoyed working using two hands. So when it initially happened, I was like, "Wow, like there goes everything I've ever worked for," kind of type stuff. But at the same time, um, I was lucky enough to have Mr. Dennison do a great job, and mm-hmm. I figured there was potential, so <laughs> I went and got it. Maybe you could. Work in construction again? Is that what you're still doing? Um, no, I'm not. <laughs> I have uh, kind of altered my my uh, working to the office scene. Okay. Try I thought use... you were going to tell me you're going into medicine, and I was going to yeah. say, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try and use my brain a little more. Um, I got a finance degree, so working for an investment firm now, just a lot of uh, talking and stuff like that. You have had another surgery how many surgeries total? Did you say three surgeries? Mm-hmm. Yep. What, tell us about the last one. Um, the last one was to shorten my ulnar bone because I was having a little bit of pain on the outside there. And in the rush of Dr. Dennison putting it back on, he... We, um, we adjust, when we had to... <laughs> yeah, he's better at explaining. Well, just quickly, we had to, when we had to shorten things so the nerves would work, we were uh, very interested in getting the blood supply to the hand. And the ulna looked okay, 
And as it turned out, it was just a little bit long and bothered him a little bit. So we fixed that. So there are two bones in the in the forearm. The bigger one is the radius, and the smaller one is the, is the ulna. And it turned out that you shortened the forearm a little bit so that the nerves you could repair the nerves easier. Correct. And but it, the ulna ended up being slightly too long. Just a little. You long. missed it by a couple of millimeters. We thought, yeah. well, what's the chance Three that's going to bother him? And sure enough, it did. Yeah. So that was the last surgery is to shorten the ulna a little bit, and then. Uh, once you do that, then you put a plate on it, and then it will heal back together. It will heal. It took a little bit longer, but it's healed. Now, um, there are some of us that are watching, some people who are watching this on YouTube, and so show show us what sort of function you have in your hand now. Um, I can do quite a bit of movement. Um, so sing- you can pretty much uh, straighten your fingers out, all the way up. Yep, out. singling out the fing- fingers is a little difficult because of the scar tissue and the binding and stuff that's in there, but... You know, I could pick up this glass and shake your hand. And yeah. When you came in, I couldn't tell. I, You have to look to see that your hand mm-hmm. has that scar I there. I mean, the scar is, you know, definitely there, yeah. and you can tell the difference. But So for f- folks who are listening on the radio and not watching on YouTube, it's just right above where your watch would be on your left hand. Did it help that it did not go through the wrist and that it really was um, not at a joint? It did. It, made, it was actually... Um, Number one, faster to get it back on there and actually gave us some other ability to stabilize it with a plate because there's just enough bone to get a couple of screws in to hold it together, which really did help. Pretty, This was pretty much an ideal circumstance uh, for a hand replant, right? I think so. I think if you had to have this happen and you could be young, healthy, and be close to the wrist and enough to get it back on in a relatively quick time, have the transportation to get here and everything else in a positive attitude, it's it's worked out. I think reasonably well for for Kennedy. So. All things considered, are you happy with the result? Yeah, yeah, very happy. I mean, yeah, all things considered, I'm I'm lucky to have a hand and no question no. about that. Did you get your coffee at Java Joe's or <laughs> are um, you still in? Yeah, I, w- I went there um, a couple <laughs> couple months after, and I I know the owners, and they they actually bought me free coffee. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's yeah. good. And a cup of ice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've been hearing the story of surgery to reattach Kennedy Folkadal's hand and his road to recovery. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Dennison and Kennedy. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about treatment options for urethral stricture. And later on in the show, lessons learned during the implementation of the electronic medical record called EPIC at Mayo Clinic. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. We'll start with news about research into aging. The presence of what are called senescent or dysfunctional cells can make young mice age faster. And using senolytic drugs in elderly mice to remove these rogue cells can improve health and extend life. These findings from Mayo Clinic researchers and collaborators provide a foundation on which to move forward in this area of aging research. Dr. James Kirkland says they can say with certainty that senescent cells can cause health problems in young mice, including physical dysfunction and lowering survival rates, and that the use of senolytics can significantly improve both health span and lifespan in much older animals. Now, the first of these drugs, or compounds that remove damaged cells from the body, were discovered at Mayo Clinic. 
The kind used in this study are a cocktail of a drug that promotes cancer cell death and an antioxidant found in apples and other foods. It works by allowing senescent cells to self-destruct rather than damage healthy cells nearby and throughout the rest of the body. The research shows it worked for mice, but the researchers caution these agents should not be taken by people unless their safety and effectiveness is demonstrated in clinical trials. They say if these agents turn out to be effective and safe in clinical trials, senolytics could help alleviate physical dysfunction and frailty in older people while increasing independence in later life. And now let's change topics and talk about your fingernails. Take a close look at them. Are they strong and healthy looking, or do you see ridges, dents, or areas of unusual color or shape? Many less than desirable nail conditions can be avoided through proper fingernail care. Others might indicate an underlying condition that needs attention. So, your fingernails, composed of laminated layers of a protein called keratin, grow from the area at the base of the nail under your cuticle. Healthy fingernails are smooth without pits or grooves. They're uniform in color and consistency and free of spots or discoloration. Now sometimes fingernails develop harmless vertical ridges that run from the cuticle to the tip of the nail. These vertical ridges tend to become more prominent with age. Fingernails can also develop white lines or spots due to injury, but these eventually grow out with the nail. Not all nail conditions are normal, however, so consult your doctor or dermatologist if you notice changes in nail color, such as discoloration of the entire nail or a dark streak under the nail, changes in nail shape, such as curled nails, thinning or thickening of the nails, separation of the nail from the surrounding skin, bleeding around the nails, or swelling or pain around the nails. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The urethra, it's a tube that carries urine from the bladder so it can be excreted from the body. Usually, the urethra is wide enough or big enough for urine to flow freely through it. But if the urethra narrows or gets constricted, it can restrict or slow the flow of urine, a condition called urethral stricture. Urethral stricture. It mainly affects men. I knew you'd want to say that. That's true. Fortunately, treatment options are available, including a new procedure using harvested tissue to reconstruct the urethra. Here to discuss urethral stricture and how it's treated is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Boyd Veers. Welcome to the program, Dr. Veers. It's nice to meet you. Nice meeting you guys as well. Thank you for having me today. Good to have you on the program, Dr. Beers. You know, it's amazing uh, how many urologic problems there are. You can see why someone would want to go into the field of urology because we've had urologists on here multiple times, and there's so many problems we've talked about. And <laughs> now the same. we've got this little tube that goes from the bladder to the outside world. What can go wrong? Kind of backing up, you know, in urology, there are different areas of urology. You have stone doctors, you have cancer doctors, you have... Um, docs in neurology who deal with quality of life, and then there's the reconstruction doctors, and that would be me. Essentially, I'm the one that deals with the aftermath of a lot of other treatment-related complications. In particular, the urethra, which uh, as men age is frequently instrumented uh, with catheters for surgeries, or if a patient has an enlarged, a man has enlarged prostate, they may require a prostatectomy or a resection of the prostate, and they can develop a scar in the urethra. Once you get a scar in the urethra, 
most times it's wide bore and you're able to uh, urinate and void well, but in a subset of men, about 1% to 2% of men in the population, uh, they do have to have some sort of intervention for that. And it's almost always following a surgical procedure on the prostate gland? No. Actually, when we look at the population in general, the most common cause of strictures are what we would term idiopathic, meaning we don't know what causes them. That's about 60%. But if you retroactively ask those patients, did you experience any blunt trauma to the perineum or to the scrotum or to the penis that you recall having an incident where you bled, about half of those men will recall that even up to 20 years before the incident. 20 really? years? Yeah. So yeah. Th- they had a bad enough injury that it caused scarring that... Progressive over time. And so why women have urethras? Why does this not affect women as much? So the average length of the female urethra is about four centimeters. Ah. So the the penile urethra itself is between 10 and 15 centimeters, so there's just much more play in in that um, being injured inadvertently and straddle injuries. Being short is good when it comes to urethra. urethra, Yes. So what what would would a patient experience if they had a urethral structure? They would experience uh, symptoms or sensation of incomplete bladder emptying is usually how it starts out. Usually they'll complain of hesitancy, doc, I'm having a hard time getting my stream started. I feel like I'm not emptying. I'll go and I'll do something. I'll drink my coffee in the morning. I'm coming back and I'm urinating again 30 minutes later. There's other causes for that sort of symptomology. We describe that as obstructive voiding symptoms, but that's some of the first things they present with. So in most instances, you either don't know the cause or it might be related to prior trauma or possibly prior surgery. Instrumentation, yeah. correct. So That means something that right. they put in through the urethra to do something else, to exactly. fix something else. Exactly, and it, and it goes along with the trend in where we see most strictures. So the most strictures that are treated surgically with a urethroplasty where you operate and you and you repair the stricture are done in men in their 30s to 40s. But the most common incident or the greatest incidence of strictures is actually in older men, and it's probably related to instrumentation. You said urethroplasty. Correct. Tell us what that's that a, that's, term it's, is. Yeah, that that's term, a doctor word. It is a doctor word. So let's uh, we'll get into the, the treatment algorithm for urethral strictures once you're diagnosed with one. And, and, and this goes back even to the time of antiquity. If you look at one of the earliest described surgical interventions, it was treating men with urethral strictures. Early on, even back dating to the time of Napoleon, the most common cause of strictures was actually related to sexually transmitted diseases, specifically gonorrhea. And so that was uh, an epidemic, and many men had strictures at that time, and they would dilate these strictures. And that was often a cause for significant health issues in those men. For instance, Napoleon had seizures, which was related to his urinary retention and his renal failure. So urethral dilation has been described for a very, very long time. Then after urethral dilation, there was the description of cutting the stricture with a scope. And so that's been around for about 200 years. And over the last about 70 years, we've started doing urethroplasty, which is where you would operate on the stricture. And that comes in varying uh, degrees of what you have to do depending on where the stricture is. 
So the the first choice would be to to dilate it and tell us how you do that. I'm not sure I want to hear this, but so, tell us how you so do I would I wouldn't necessarily say it's the first choice, but okay. it is a choice. You would uh, use a cystoscope, which is a small fiber optic scope that you would introduce into the urethra, and then you could dilate the stricture with the uh, hope that that stricture will then scar open. So you dilate, you mean make it larger? Make it larger. And you can do that through the scope? You can do that through the scope, visualizing the stricture, yes. But sometimes that doesn't work? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> and, and you would say the same for um, internal urethrotomy, which is the medical word for uh, cutting the stricture. Um, those are the early treatments that we described. And when you look at the success rate of those two options – um, and you follow patients long enough, uh, the success rate at about five years is only 10% that these men will need another treatment. And the reason that's important is because when you uh, survey urologists in the community that aren't reconstruction trained, only 2% of uh, patients that present with strictures actually undergo a urethroplasty or a formal repair. That means the other 98% are getting these uh, temporizing treatments. How is this diagnosed in the first place? So patients either come in with obstructive symptoms or complications related to the strictures, such as urine retention or infection or bleeding. And that goes down the road of uh, doing a cystoscopy uh, to look at the urethra, which is a, another type of scope that you would insert and look at the actual inside of the urethra. That's often done in clinic, and then they're referred on. Okay, so you talked about uh, the the prior options, um, the uh, dilation, the cutting, and then the new procedure is the urethroplasty, right? That, so is, that is becoming the standard of care, uh, and it's becoming more recognized as the optimal option for men. And, and what do you do exactly? It depends. So that is a, that's a, that's a million-dollar question, and there's books written on this, and it really comes down to where the stricture is. Um, there is you can you can simply cut the stricture or, or cut the scar out and put uh, and I tell patients you put good back to good so it's an end to end or an anastomotic urethroplasty and the success rate of that is about ninety five percent so it's it's a durable treatment option um, and we can even do it as an outpatient uh, uh, whereas in the past patients were typically staying in the hospital for up to three to four nights if the stricture is longer. Then we have to go to more complex urethral reconstruction techniques, and that's where we start using substitution, uh, and we start substituting tissue, and, and the, the tissue that we use is actually the skin from the inside of the cheek called buccal mucosa. Oh, yeah, so a little cheek to help repair your urethra. <laughs> yeah. yeah, believe amazing. it or not, yes. So yeah. you are a urologist, but then I presume you did a fellowship in what's called reconstructive urology? Yep, trauma and reconstruction, yep. And it's fortunate that the people have a, who have a urinary stricture, mostly men, have somebody like you around to fix them. We're getting there. We're getting there. So when you look at uh, states with genital urinary reconstruction trained urologist at this point in time about half the states in the country have one all right well i bet you're a busy guy yeah yeah we're yes we are busy all right everything you wanted to know about stricture of the urethra from mayo clinic urologist dr boyd beers dr beers thanks so much for being with us yeah, thank you we're going to take a short break when we come back we'll hear about lessons learned during the implementation of a new electronic health record at mayo clinic you're listening to mayo clinic radio on the mayo clinic news network 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheib. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, this past May, as you well know, Mayo Clinic continued its move to a single integrated electronic health record and billing system with the implementation of EPIC at its Rochester, Minnesota campus. Now, the project is called The Plumber Project, building on the legacy of Dr. Henry Plummer. Dr. Plummer created the world's first patient-centered health record at Mayo Clinic more than a century ago. The Rochester Go Live was Mayo Clinic's third of four implementations. Epic first launched across Mayo Clinic Health System in Wisconsin and in Minnesota in 2017, and Mayo Clinic's Arizona and Florida campuses are scheduled to go live with Epic this fall. In total, more than 51,000 Mayo Clinic employees will be trained to use Epic, including you, Dr. Tom Shives. <laughs> and it has not been easy. <laughs> <laughs> Here to discuss lessons learned through this process is Dr. Steve Peters. Dr. Peters is a pulmonologist at Mayo Clinic and is co-chair of the Plumber Project. Welcome to the program, Dr. Peters. It's nice to see you. Thanks for having me. Dr. Peters. Whew. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> was it more difficult or easier than you thought it was going to be? That's a great question. It's hard to answer. I think, on balance, it it ended up pretty uh, successful, such that it's probably a little easier than I thought it would be or that I feared it would be. Uh, one rewarding part is to see the colleagues who might have been struggling the first week or two who now have really settled in to kind of a day-to-day mode. There are still a lot of little pockets of, uh, of difficulty with workflow or learning the system, but overall as an entire enterprise – it's felt to be very successful. Aside from hoping that Dr. Shive's head would not explode, <laughs> what uh, what was the main reason why the need to change what we at Mayo Clinic were doing or what other medical institutions are doing that is causing people to change to this? Right. There are several drivers for this. One was as Mayo Clinic grew over the past 30 years and more, and we spread out geographically the sites developed somewhat their own identity, but also their own sets of tools, orders, solutions, ways to evaluate clinical problems. And our leadership felt that we were losing some of our common experience or patient care or best practices. And we wanted ways to disseminate our knowledge everywhere to each patient at each location. Mayo had been operating more or less as a holding company of some of the sites But as they became more integrated, we were looking for practice integration as well, and we needed tools to do that. A very specific reason is that the core medical record in Rochester, which is based on a general electric product, is going out of production, and the support for that will end at the end of this year. So we had a very concrete reason why we had to change in Rochester and a strong desire to converge on a common set of tools at every site. So we have one version one instance of EPIC across three time zones when uh, we're completed with the project this fall. This program is on almost now 200 stations across the country. Is this something that a lot of hospitals are going through because of that general electric product going away? Uh, It's a relatively small number of enterprise customers on the GE Centricity product, and they all will make a change. They'll be required to. On a broader sense, Almost every hospital in the country has gone to electronic medical records. So the experience is very common. 
the size and complexity of our implementation is not common. What we think, along with Epic, that we were the biggest single implementation at one time that had been done. Huge undertaking, but at least now we're all on the same page from a, from a medical sta- standpoint and a healthcare record standpoint. But I did read that before this is, when this is over, you will have trained 51,000 Mayo Clinic employees at the, at the three sites uh, plus the health system. How do you go about doing that? Right. That's correct, I think. We probably have about 65,000 employees total, but 10 to 15,000 of them don't use the medical record on a regular basis and so haven't needed to be trained. We're probably at about 42,000 that have been trained so far and another nine to 10,000 to go in Arizona and Florida. The uh, training is a project unto itself. It has a, a very specific plan, a curriculum. It requires some self-study by each learner and then hopefully focused and brief classroom training and then ongoing on-the-job learning after we're, uh, we're live. Why was it that you said yes when they asked you to be co-director of this project? <laughs> well, what the, the project... <laughs> It's a challenge, but I have been involved for at least 25 years with other medical record applications in Rochester and uh, many aspects of it. And so I felt that uh, perhaps I could help, and I was interested and excited to do it. Well, yeah, you're fabulous, extremely bright, and we're so glad that you were willing to to do this as co-director. So what, what lessons have you learned? What might you do a little bit differently when you get to Florida and get to Arizona? We've learned a lot from the earlier implementations. We've modified the training and made it more focused to the tasks or some of the scenarios that an individual needs. We've increased the number and the training of the super users. Those are individuals embedded in the practice, whether it's physician, nurse, desk staff, who really help to understand their local workflow rather than just how the, how you navigate the tool. And, uh, and then fine-tuned where more support would be needed and which types of workflows for example, moving from one setting to another, from an outpatient to inpatient or emergency room to an interventional radiology procedure to the operating room, these are, are pose kind of special challenges where we can focus some of the training and some of the build of, the, of EPIC so that it is um, more easily done. Will you get a trophy or anything when this when you get this <laughs> all week done? Off, I mean, maybe? You, yeah, I mean, you have worked a day and tirelessly for months to get this done. Well, I don't know if there's a trophy in it, but uh, but I enjoy doing it, and I have I have plenty of time off coming. All right, we've been talking about Mayo Clinic's implementation of the new electronic health record called Epic with Dr. Steve Peters, who is co-director of the project. Dr. Peters, thanks for all you're doing, and we appreciate it. And thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.